friends, welcome to the Sunday Sermon segment of We Need God. Please listen as Father Carrozza offers his homily for today, which was recorded live in St. Anne's Parish. Anyone who is a baseball fan knows for sure that with all the different rivalries that there are out there between different teams, one thing that people who are on the opposite side of rivals can all agree about is that universally, baseball fans hate the umpires. They receive more grief from anyone else and more screaming at TV screens and probably more source of confession material than anybody else that we come across. And if you're a baseball fan or you have someone in your family who is a baseball fan, I'm sure you've come across things such as this. What, ump? You call that a strike? Oh, come on. He couldn't hit that if he was swinging the Brooklyn Bridge. Or, all right, double play ball. What? You called him safe? Are you out of your mind? Are you blind? When was the last time you had your eyes checked, ump? You want to borrow my glasses? Open your eyes. You're missing the best part of the game. Yeah, you've heard it, haven't you? <coughs> Maybe you've even done it yourself at times. Yeah, we know that the umpires are hated by everybody and... You know, sometimes they really mess up. But imagine if somebody were to say, well, we'll solve that problem by getting rid of the umpires. Let's not have umpires. Let's just let the players decide for themselves whether the person was safe or out, or whether it was a ball or strike. What would happen? Absolute bedlam. You can imagine the frequent uh, uh, bench-clearing brawls that would take place on anything that was even close to being a ball or a strike or being safe or out. No, we could not possibly just leave it to the members, uh, to the players, to decide for themselves what was right and wrong. Because human nature being what it is, they're certainly not going to agree on that. And that's going to happen on a regular basis, not on a rare moment. No, we realize as much as we don't like the umpires, how important they are. And in fairness, most of the times the umpires get the calls right. But every once in a while they blow one. And Sometimes they blow it big, bigly, or bigly, that's not a word, big time, that's the word I'm looking for. They blow it big time, and sometimes later, uh, people question the call. And sometimes those errors that they've made have, were not just the difference of somebody being safe or out, but have made the difference of games, even of World Series, and in one case, even the difference of a man throwing a perfect game, which was denied him because of a blatant error by an ump. So, some years back, Major League Baseball decided to institute an umpire committee in New York, whereby during the game, if the manager of a team should want to challenge, thinks that the ump made a mistake, he can call and have a challenge. And this, this committee in New York looks at all the videos, and they have it from every angle in slow motion to try to figure out exactly whether it was safe or out, foul or fair, whatever the story may be. And, of course, you see that happening in the games. You know, when somebody challenges, the umpires come and they put the headsets on, and eventually, you know, they come out and the umpire will either say safe or out, depending on what it was. And so, we look to them as the final word. Now, imagine if you had a player who insists he was safe, yet, uh, and the call was out on the field, they challenged it, and the umpiring committee comes back and says, no, he was out. Well, what does the player have to do? He just has to accept it. That is the ultimate authority in baseball, is that umpiring committee in New York. And if they say you are out, you're out, whether you like it or not. And you can't protest and complain, I was safe, 
If some, imagine somebody did that afterwards at a press conference. I was safe. They all missed the thing. Well, people would probably look like, at him like he was a, spo like a spoiled little brat or a crybaby throwing a temper tantrum because he wanted to be safe, but in fact he was out. Wouldn't it be wonderful, though, because we could even question even those people in that committee. They're human beings, and they could make a mistake, even though there's several of them looking at it, not just one person. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a 100% guarantee that that committee would never get a call wrong, that it was impossible for, the, for them to get it wrong? If we could, which we don't in baseball, but if we could, we, that would make um, replays and uh, challenges to that committee absolutely incontrovertible because people would say, hey, they can't make a mistake. But we know that that committee is not human. They could make a mistake. Yet, baseball fans have no problem accepting what that committee rules. All right, well, the committee ruled. We just have to accept it, and our team lost the game, or whatever it may be. Well, if baseball is like that with all of its rules, how about our lives? We have a lot of rules in our lives, a lot of do's and don'ts, things that come to us from the scriptures, things that come to us from the church, things that come from so many other places, our workplaces, you know, etiquette and you know, things that the boss tells you you can do this and can't do that. Schools certainly have lots of rules. We're under a lot of rules all the time. And sometimes we don't like the rules that we get. And sometimes those rules differ from one person to another. Certainly, when it comes to our faith, we see many people who have different opinions as to something in our teachings, a dogma, or a, a moral teaching, whatever it may be. Is that right or is it wrong? Is the Lord pleased with this or is the Lord opposed to it? And wouldn't it be wonderful if we had somebody who was the ultimate authority? That we said when people, good people disagree about something, we could refer to that one authority and that authority would be the ultimate source and that authority could never, ever be wrong, just like we would want that, um, that uh, committee in baseball to be. Well, the good news is we do have that person, and we do have that committee. The Lord foresaw the need for that. He knew we would need to be able to know the truth in following him, and so he arranged that we would have somebody who could always teach us the truth and would never be wrong. And that's what we hear in the Gospel reading today, this passage from Jesus and the Apostles at Caesarea Philippi that we call the commissioning of St. Peter and effectively making him the first pope. Now let's look a little closely at what was happening there. When they went to Caesarea Philippi, the Apostles had just come back from preaching everywhere and the, everybody was astounded at what they were doing. They were thrilled with everything. And Jesus asks them, well, who do the people say that I am? And they say, some think you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Others, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Great, he says, but who do you say that I am? You can almost hear the silence among the apostles. It's very easy to say what other people say. Who do you say that I am? One by one, the apostles, you can almost see them in silence. And finally, Simon speaks up and says, I say you are the Christ the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus turns to him and says to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for no human being has revealed this to you but my Father in heaven. And then he enters into a classic pattern there that we see God doing throughout the Old Testament of changing somebody's name and entering a covenant with him. If we, have, if we were in a class or if I had more time, I'd love to break down every line of what he did in that uh, passage with Peter, but it's a classic case 
Um, and I'll let, just look briefly at what he did. First of all, we see God over and over changing somebody's name in Scripture. The name is always changed in blessing, never in cursing anyone. Secondly, the fact that he changes the name means the person who call, gives the person the name has authority over the other person. The, name of the, of the, cha the, the meaning of the name that he gives him is significant. He enters into a covenant with the person and gives him a commission. And we see that over and over again. And here with Peter, you are Peter. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. There's the blessing. I for myself declare to you. So therefore, Jesus is showing his authority over Simon Peter. You, Simon, are now Peter. The name means rock, bedrock, the solid rock foundation, the type of foundation upon which you would look to build a sturdy building. You are my bedrock, if you will. And the jaws of death, the power of hell, the power of the netherworld, there's many ways to interpret that line, will not prevail against it. There's the covenant. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What you hold bound on earth will be held bound in heaven. What you let loose on earth shall be let loose in heaven. In other words, the commission is, Peter, I'm going to allow you to speak in my name. You will be the ultimate voice. I will inspire you fill you with the Holy Spirit so that when you speak, people will know it is my voice they are hearing. So if, I, if you tell them that it is something that is sinful, cannot be done, they know that's coming from me. And if I tell you it's a good thing that you may do or something mandatory, they will also know that it is coming from me. And one of those I would like to look at a little more closely is the power of the netherworld will not prevail against the church. That means several things. First of all, the church will never come to an end. So the Lord has promised that the Catholic Church will always prevail. And sometimes you hear people saying, oh, this such and such, you know, this scandal, whatever, will be the end of the church. Well, no, it won't. We face so many different scandals over 2,000 years that should have sunk the church, and yet we still always survive because the Lord promised that to Peter. And secondly, the power of the netherworld, the power of death, the jaws of death, however we translate it, and there's many different ways it can be done. What does that mean? What brought death into the world? Or who brought death into the world? Satan. And how did Satan bring death into the world? By tricking Adam and Eve, by lying to them. So a lie is the power of Satan that leads to death. And so the Lord promised Peter he would never allow the church to sustain a lie, to consistently and clearly teach something that in fact is not true. So therefore we know now down to this day that Pope Francis, who has the same authority that has been passed from St. Peter down to St. Linus and Clement, Cletus and Clement down to Pope Francis, has that same ability that when he speaks prayerfully and after consultation with the bishops and after much research on an issue, when, the, when he speaks clearly and definitively, we can be guaranteed 100% sure that this is the truth of Christ. Because if we say otherwise, then we have to say one of two things. Either Jesus was not powerful enough to keep the Pope from teaching a lie, or Jesus lied to St. Peter. And of course, that cannot be. And of course, some people, in looking at the authority of the Pope, will look at some of the Popes in history who were, Im who were quite immoral and in other ways very corrupt, and they'll say, well, how could you possibly listen to the Church after all of those Popes who were so sinful? And there's not as many as some people try to make them out to be. But we say, fair enough, of course, truly. Yes, there were popes who were an embarrassment to us when you look at their moral lives. But notice, no pope has ever formally declared 
a teaching that another pope had to correct. It has never been done. And the holiness or the, the promise of Jesus doesn't to Peter doesn't depend on the personal holiness of the individual. And the promise to Peter is not lost simply because a pope commits a sin. Just like in the United States government, if we had a president who committed a horrible sin, was removed from office or whatever it may be, well, we would get another president, but nobody would say, how can you listen to the Constitution after that president committed so much sin? Well, the same thing with the church. Just because a pope was sinful in his private life doesn't mean Jesus' promise to Peter is now null and void. And it's an interesting thing to note, as I said, that no pope has ever had to be corrected with, by, of an error by a moral teaching or something to do with our faith. And one specific example of that, the pope we have in the back of our church, San Silverio. Silverius was a pope in the 6th century, and he was not pope for very long because he was elected pope at a time where a great heresy was going through the church. And there was a deacon who expected to be elected pope when the pope had died, and he wasn't chosen. They chose instead Silverius to be pope. And he was furious, and so was the empress. The empress and, and this deacon, Virgilius, were, um, espoused the heresy that was going around in the church. And so the empress and Virgilius together plotted against Silverius to have, to, you know, with fake news as we would call it today, and all sorts of lies about him, to have him stripped from his regalia and removed from office and have Virgilius placed on the throne of St. Peter. And they did that. And now uh, the empress probably figured, now that he's the pope, now he's going to rule in favor of the, emperor, of the heresy. And you know what happened? When he became pope, he ruled in favor of the Orthodox faith and condemned that teaching as a heresy. He, he did a complete 180 on what he had held before. And he went through the same fate that Silverio had done. The emperors in anger removed him ultimately from office as well. But I've always seen that as a sign that God keeps his promises. That even as pope, he said things very different from what he had thought as a deacon. And sometimes even as a bishop in the church when he becomes pope, may say some very different things. And so sometimes when the people hear about our belief in the infallibility of the Pope and of the church, they look at that somehow as some sort of oppression, that here the church is telling us, you know, we're just going to, you know, and some people on the outside would say, well, we're just going to blindly tell you, you have to guide, listen to us whether you like it or not, and that they're trying to manipulate and control us. Oh, quite the opposite. I see it not as anything that's a burden, but quite frankly, as such a relief. I find it such security, such reinforcement, such comfort to know that the Lord has promised to teach us through the Holy Father, that it's not his whim that if the Pope wakes up tomorrow morning and says, guess what, chocolate ice cream is better than vanilla, now everybody's got to like chocolate instead of vanilla. No, of course not. First of all, it's got to be a matter of faith and morals, and he's got to be intending it to be a teaching. And there's strict formulas that the church uses to help us know what would merely be the Pope's opinion and what is a formal teaching. But when the church does teach something formally, we can absolutely guarantee and follow it with complete confidence because we know this is the voice of Jesus teaching us through the authority of the keys that Jesus gave to St. Peter. And so... We can do it without questioning. And sadly, at the uh, Protestant Reformation, starting with Martin Luther and then many others, there were a lot of people who decided somehow we don't have to listen to the Pope anymore, and they tried to tear apart Peter's profession of faith and what Jesus was saying to him. 
I have details on that on my website if you'd like to see it. I wish we had time to talk about it this morning. But when they've separated from the Pope, they decided, no, just ask the people. We can meet together and decide from among ourselves. But what happened? They fractured. They splintered very quickly from, you know, it, it's not like all the Protestants were together in one camp versus the Catholics. They splintered and splintered and splintered. And many of the religious wars were Protestants against Protestants. And it got down to the point that now here in America, it seems that anybody who gets religion, if you will, people who discover the Lord, instead of going to a church and training and being ordained by them, rents a, 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 a storefront and decides to preach in the name of Jesus. And it's nice. I'm glad the person has faith. But how do we know what that person is teaching is the truth of Christ? And sadly, many people go looking for people who will say what they want to hear and what they believe is the truth. My mother was even telling me about a woman in her senior group who says, well, she's been going around from denomination to denomination looking for a church with a good choir. A good choir, that's what we go to hear on Sunday? I said, well, if you want to hear a good choir, you can buy a CD or download a file from the internet. We don't need to go to a church for that. And of course, the, when, uh, when our Protestant brothers and sisters broke away and decided just let the people decide for themselves, well, the very bedlam we talked about with baseball is what took place there. And there used to be a church down in, uh, in Harlem that when I was in the seminary, we would pass every month coming back from the, in, in the school bus from the, seminary, uh, from the cathedral to the seminary, a storefront church that said, the true church of Jesus Christ of the apostolic faith. And I was always amazed by that because I realized what that minister was noting. And he noted something very important and very real in the world. He says, all these people are going around claiming they teach for Christ, yet uh, they speak for him, and they're speaking his truth, yet they're all saying very different things, things that contradict each other. How do we know what the truth is? Who speaks the truth for Christ? He says, so therefore, I'm going to create the true church of Jesus Christ of the apostolic faith, the true church that Jesus created on the apostles. That's what we're going to find here. And I said to myself, wonderful, there's only one thing. He didn't realize that what he actually did was reinvent the Catholic Church. That is what we have, in fact, always maintained to be. We are the true church created by Christ on the apostolic faith, of the faith Jesus established with the apostles, and he established the apostles with the pope as their head, and the bishops who were the successor to the apostles as the ones who continue to guide the church and the one through whom he speaks to the world to this very day. So that person went full circle and realized whether he knew it or not, if you want to know the truth of Christ, go to the Catholic Church. We are the only ones who can claim that Jesus made a promise to someone in our number, specifically the Pope, that the Lord would guide him, that when he speaks definitively, it would never be an error. The problem for us, though, is not just that we don't know whether the Pope is right or wrong. No, when he speaks, that's the final word, just like the uh, umpires committee, when they you know, appeal it to the committee in New York, well, that's the final word. The Pope is the final word. As St. Augustine once said, Rome has spoken, the case is finished. So the Pope has spoken, there should be no more word after that. The problem becomes that some people would honestly be saying, okay, well, that's what the Pope said, good, we just don't know. But sometimes when the church reveals something definitively, people don't like it. They wanted it to be the opposite, just like the person who was called out but he wanted to be safe. Well, we wanted it to go the other way, but it didn't go our way. 
How do we respond? Well, just like we said that that baseball player who thought he was safe but was called out should respond and say, well, I guess I just have to accept it. The authorities ruled me out, so therefore I'm out. If instead he grumbled and carried on at a press conference, remember we said that you know, we would think he was just being childish you know, and not mature and not listening to proper authority and just being babyish about it. Well, what happens with some people in the church when the church doesn't rule their way? They get petitions together. They scream and yell. They're violent. They call press conferences. They, they go out and have protests and they you know, present things they want the church to overchange the teaching. And they scream and yell and call all sorts of problems. We call them church names. We'll call them anything from sexist to whatever it may be, depending on the issue. And scream and carry on like children carrying on a temper tantrum. And my friends, that's childish. Whenever people are doing that, I think I, I look at them and say, come on, folks, quite frankly, in all charity, grow up. Grow up. Being a responsible Christian means we accept what the Lord teaches through the church, whether we like it or not. And I've had instances where there were things I believed that the church came out and taught differently, and I had to change my mind on it, most specifically the death penalty. So I had to say, well, all right, the church ruled definitively. I will change my mind, and I will now be against the death penalty, where beforehand I felt a reason to justify it. And in anything, we need to do that. Because if we find ourselves fighting the church or looking for denominations of Christianity or parishes that teach things the way we want or don't mention the things that we don't want to hear, we're really not fighting with the Catholic Church or fighting with the Pope. We're fighting with Christ himself. We're actually yelling at Christ, saying, I don't like what you're teaching, and Jesus, I want you to change it. And of course, we all realize how wrong that is. So what should we do when there is a teaching of the church that the church comes out and teaches something definitively and we just don't like the result? We wanted it to be something else. Well, remember one thing. The Pope didn't just get up in a bad mood one morning and decide to ban something. When a church, the church teaches something, that teaching comes after careful and sufficient prayer and study and consultation with the bishops, with other authorities, with all sorts of people imaginable. And the church takes her time to do something to make sure that we can be sure what we're hearing is the absolute truth of Christ. And she only makes that teaching when she is certain without any doubt whatsoever. So find out why the church teaches what she does. Look for it. Look for understanding for the reason behind it. I guarantee you, you will find it there. But even in the meantime, while we're looking for that, faith in Christ and obedience to him means accepting what the Lord teaches us through the church, even if we don't understand it. Just as any of you who have children and know that your children sometimes have not liked some things that you have taught them, told them they had to do, and you've said to them, when you're a parent yourself, you will understand. And when they have become parents, yeah, they all of a sudden understand. Well, the same thing may happen with us. Someday, we will be in the position to understand why the Holy Father and the Church is prohibiting something, commanding something else, whatever the issue may be. So may we never find ourselves confronting a clear and decisive teaching of the Church as if it somehow is wrong. Because in saying that, we're saying Jesus lied to St. Peter or Jesus was not powerful enough to stop the Church from teaching a lie. No, when the Church teaches clearly and definitively, we know for sure it is absolutely the 100% truth of Christ. We can be absolutely guaranteed that because Jesus promised he would always teach that way to us through St. Peter. He would always 
teach the church that she would never sustain a lie, but would always, through all of time, teach us the truth, the truth that indeed will set us free. May Jesus Christ be praised, now and forever. Thank you for listening to this week's homily by Father Carrozza. If you enjoyed this homily, please pass the word on to your friends and invite them to listen. For more materials from Father Carrozza, please visit www.fathercarrozza.com.